Kia ora koutou and good evening. Uh, my name is Rachel King. I'm the Programme Director of, the, of Word Christchurch and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the autumn season in association with the Auckland Writers' Festival and tonight's event, Time Travel with James Glick. This session is chaired by Daniel Bernardi from San Francisco State University who is the current Erskine Fellow in Film Studies at the University of Canterbury. Now I'll leave it up to Daniel to introduce James properly, um, but in the meantime I'd like first to thank some organisations who helped make this happen. The Auckland Writers Festival for sharing all of the autumn season authors with us, and thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, Christchurch City Council, the Rata Foundation, and Te Runanga o Naitahu. I'd also like to acknowledge the support of UC Science and UC Arts. So please enjoy your evening, and please welcome James Glick and Daniel Bernardi. Thank you very much. What a beautiful uh, facility this is, and a terrific uh, crowd for uh, one of uh, my country's um, best writers, in my view. Um, I'm really happy to be here, to be able to sit with James. I've read his books. He, he's from New York. I was originally from New York. I live in San Francisco, so we have that in common. He went to Harvard, which is an okay school. He worked for the New York Times uh, for, I think, about 10 years and did the Metropolitan Desk and wrote about science. He's published really widely. He's published in the New York Times uh, Review of Books, uh, Atlantic Slate, lots of places, six or seven books, I think, right? Mm -hmm. uh, many of which I've read. I'm a, a filmmaker and uh, sort of a cultural studies scholar, and I'm really interested in science, but I can't read the scientists because they write in very specific uh, language. So I read him, and he makes it um, legible, uh, makes it meaningful, connects the dots, and then offers something unique and original in the process. And so I'm really thrilled to be here uh, to be able to sit and ask you some questions. Thank you. That's very kind. And I, I'm thrilled to be here, too. I, I'm delighted to be back in Christchurch. I've been to Christchurch once before, and it was before the earthquake. So it's fantastic and sobering to, to see it again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, let's start. Yeah. So um, you, you've written on chaos, you've written on information, you've done biographies of major scientists. Um, why did you turn to time travel as a concept to, to, to write your, this book? It was a kind of odd choice of subjects, I have to admit, and I ought to, I ought to be able to give a very quick answer by now. I'll tell you why. I, what's not the answer. It's not because I've always been a time travel aficionado. You know, if, I've discovered that everybody has a favorite time travel book or time travel movie, and often I still haven't read them or seen them. Although I always liked time travel, I read science fiction when I was a kid, and there's something about time travel that is always kind of grabbed me. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, at some point I discovered that, I discovered this weird fact, and, and this is what really got me going, and that is that time travel is a new idea. And that just, I, that didn't make any sense to me. I always assumed that time travel is just, 
you know, it's such an ordinary thing. We all grow up knowing about time travel. I don't think, I'm guessing that, that if I ask people here, when did you first hear of time travel, you would say that you have no idea. I mean, I certainly have no idea. But it turns out that time travel was more or less invented by H.G. Wells. So that's 1895, mm. the time machine. And so that makes it possible I mean, my book is Time Travel, A History. So suddenly there's a thing that you could write a history of, this, this sort of weird idea. I, I mean, the f some natural questions arise. You know, why did it take so long for us humans to invent this obvious notion, this obvious kind of fantasy? And then um, why did it happen then, right. assuming it wasn't just this one guy? Right. Well, yeah, I mean, um, 1895, basically the birth of cinema, um, which itself is a well, kind of time travel. And that, has, that definitely has something to do with it. And photography, photography just before the birth of cinema, enabling the birth of cinema, was freezing time. Right. It was enabling people to, to see things that, that, to see, for example, the way a horse gallops, you know, in frozen frozen images instead of as a blur. And that's just one of many technologies that's, that suddenly were changing the way people thought about time and enabling them to think about it differently. The telegraph was um, sending signals across the landscape at, at light speed and making possible, um, because there was instantaneous communication, it was making it possible for people to notice that the time was different in different locations, and, and, and it was making it necessary for people to deal with that. And the same thing with the railroads, and so very quickly you're forced to have standard time and time zones and all of the awkward apparatus that we're all so familiar with today, the international dateline. Uh. And so time was changing. Every, the way people thought about time was was kind of up for grabs, and, and I, I came to feel that that was the that was the essence of the story that I was ab about to tell, that that H.G. Wells was living in a world where time was just in flux and kind of acting weird. And not just H.G. Wells, but the scientists, because immediately Albert Einstein came along, that is, ten years after Wells. And, and psychologists like... Um, like William James and Henri Bergson were trying to f were arguing about what time was and tr trying to figure it out in psychological terms, and all of these things were kind of operating on parallel tracks. And one of those tracks is the development of this weird genre, where you know a man sits on a funny-looking machine and throws a lever and hurls himself into the future. Well, Freud, you know, and the unconscious about recovering. Um, historical memories to heal, to go through the talking cure. Um, but it, it's really, if, if, I, if I read right, it's really Einstein that, that in, in the scientific community gives time travel eventually, because at first I think he might have been, as you point out, a little bit apprehensive about it, but gives time travel some currency. Well, it's not that Einstein ever actually believed in time travel in this literal way we're talking about, but, but it is true I had a conversation with a, a theoretical physicist when I was working on the book. 
I said I was working on a book about time travel, and, you know, of course, I, I said there is no such thing, right? And he said, oh, no, of course, time travel is possible. Einstein showed us how. And what Einstein showed us um, is that if you travel at close to the speed of life, and or if you travel through a very intense gravitational field, like near a black hole, time travels more slowly for you, much more, much more slowly. That is, Einstein, to put it another way, discovered that everyone has a kind of personal clock, that time is not absolute, as Newton had thought, that there is no perfect simultaneity across the universe. So that was a kind of disturbing and disorienting notion, this idea that you can't say that there's one time, there's one cosmic clock, God's clock, that's ticking away, and it's the same time everywhere. And so science fiction writers use this Einstein version of time travel to, well, I remember a book that I read when I was a kid where there are twins, and one of the twins stays home on Earth, and the other twin goes off to the stars on a starship, and when he comes back, his twin brother is long dead, yeah. and he marries his niece. <laughs> Gra or grandniece. Um, so, yeah, that's a kind of time travel, if you want, but, but in another way, it's a sort of disappointing kind of time travel, because you're not leaping ahead, it's just that you're changing your personal speed and everybody else's... Well, it's also a kind of Rip Van Winkle version of time travel, you know, sleeping into the future. And Woody Allen, as you know, has his, his version of that. He has a little bit of a say on that, yeah. Right. It's Sleeper, the, where... Um, I don't remember his name now, fall, falls asleep and, and wakes up and, and everyone, is, everyone is dead and he's in a new world. Yeah. But the kind of time travel where you can throw a switch or walk through a door and be at a particular date or hurl yourself, hurl yourself even more interestingly into the past, that I don't think exists except in our fertile imaginations. What about... Um, all right, so I'm no scientist. I'm not either. But I have access to Google. So um, okay. what about uh, um, quantum statistics and the idea that quantum statistics, as I understand it, quantum mechanics can produce at the very small level a sort of time travel by teleportation. I was reading all about that. Okay. And it seems there were some tests in the 1990s that suggests that at the quantum level, a very small, they have achieved time travel through teleportation. I'm skeptical, frankly. I mean, there is a thing called, there is quantum teleportation. And there are weird things that happen in quantum theory that I'm, I am not competent to weigh in on. But, but I, I, I'm not a believer that there's gonna be, I hope this isn't gonna you know, cause people to, to get up and bolt for the doors. <laughs> but I'm not a, a believer in that we're ever going to have um, any kind of real-time travel, that I don't believe that it's possible. And I can say why I don't think it's possible, but I, but I think first I should say, sort of in f full disclosure, and this I'm, I'm certain of, 
that if, you, if this was a room full of science fiction writers, and I said, is time travel possible, they would unanimously say, absolutely not. You know, we're, we're in charge of time travel. We know how to invent it, but <laughs> it's not real. But if it was a room full of theoretical physicists, hardly anybody would be willing to say absolutely not, and a lot of them would really, you know, kind of str string you along a little bit. No, um, you know, they like the idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I take it, some of um, the aspects of general relativity and some of the aspects of uh, quantum mechanics that Hawking did with uh, black holes and, and um, the bending of, of time and space do sort of predict it absent a unified theory. And so they're all wanting to answer the question of how we put it all together. And it looks to me a little bit like, you know, from a writer's point of view, the plot here is time travel. Right. Well, a lot of their people do like the idea. And, and what I think is, from my standpoint of watching these parallel cultural tracks, you know, people thinking about time in literature, in pulp science fiction, in psychology, in physics, as, cult, as related cultural phenomena, with no disrespect to scientists who I'm, you know, have spent a career writing about and admire, um, I also think it's fair to observe that they've grown up reading the same science fiction books as the rest of us mm -hmm. and being influenced by them and loving the stories. And so scientists like to talk about wormholes. And um, Kurt Gödel, Einstein's friend and colleague and the great logician of the 20th century, uh, had, a, had worked out a mathematical idea by which in certain versions of the universe, if the universe had certain characteristics, if it was rotating in a certain way, which ours doesn't appear to be doing, he told Einstein it would be possible to imagine a kind of time travel to the past that in the form of closed time-like curves right. so that some parts of the universe would be in a sort of loop, past and future, and he was enthusiastic about the idea, and I don't think Einstein ever particularly bought it, but it doesn't matter. I mean, none of us has a monopoly on the truth, I'd right. say. <laughs> right, uh, especially where we're from. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I was, you know, my first question was going to be, if you go back like, in time... Was that, a, was that a Trump joke already? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was my first question. Was, uh, I had planned this really interesting question. Is if you can go back go in time, James, would you go back to late October and whisper in Comey's ear? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, that, a lot of versions of that joke have been going around, as you can imagine. <laughs> you, you know, when I was working on the book, the standard trope, if you could go back, if you could right. go back in time Butterfly and you could alter history, what would you do? Well, it was obvious what you would do. You would kill Hitler. Yeah. And there are many books starting all the way back to, I, I tried to trace this back and the earliest I could find was, I think 1941, there's a short story. I mean, before the enormity of Hitler was, was known, um, somebody was fantasizing about a time traveler killing Hitler, and so many people have, have right. written versions of that, and it, it almost never works out the way, you know, there's rarely a happy ending. Um, 
And then all of a sudden last year, people were thinking, could you go back in time and teach manners to baby Trump? Uh, I'd go back and talk to Comey, but same thing, same thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, but time travel has stuck. I mean, people are fascinated by it's it. Exploded. It's meaningful. I mean, it's, there's, I, I felt when I was working on the book, there was a new, I mean, honestly, when I started working on the book, this is going to sound stupid, but I had an idea that I didn't know how the book was going to end, and I had an idea that maybe this rich mine of material has has reached an end. Maybe it's been exhausted. Mm. Maybe all the clever time travel ideas have been done and, and the genre is going to come to an end and we'll move on. And just the opposite has ha just the opposite happened. Every, every season a new book would come out and just this year there are three or four new time travel shows on TV and a lot of them are just crap, but, mm. but, but some of them are... Um, are really imaginative, and people are are using the this I, this beautiful idea to explore our world in new ways, to say new things about time. Well, I want to ask you a few questions about film and popular culture, but maybe broadly before that, I mean, why? I mean, why have why have people across the planet? So it's kind of transcultural. Um, really sort of thought deeply and movingly, sometimes silly through Hollywood, but nonetheless passionately about time travel. Like, what is it about um, our culture, our consciousness at this moment in time? Do you think this particular concept, however far-fetched, has been, become so meaningful to people? Such a, if anything, you know, some people believe it to be true, so they have faith in it, but some people yeah. look at it as a metaphor. I do have a kind of finalish answer to that question but but before the before the finalish answer um, there's so many different so many different ways time travel lets you explore things about philosophy or about families or about relationships I mean well certainly one powerful motivation for time travel is the desire to do things over to get a do-over you know you think, oh, if only I could, you know, have have that conversation again, I would get it right this time. And and so, you know, along those lines, I think one of the great time travel movies, even though you might not think of it as a time travel movie, is Groundhog Day, where where Bill Murray wakes up at at six o'clock every well every day. It's the same day. And he has to relive the day until gradually. Well, I'm not, I don't have to give the movie away. You've all, you've all seen it. But that's a kind of time travel, and that's one motivation for time travel. But I think another kind of motivation has to do with thinking about families, thinking about children, thinking about parents. A surprising amount of time travel, when you start to look for it, involves fathers and mothers. Um, back to the future. Yep. Isn't that what it's about? I mean, isn't isn't this really isn't this a, really a movie about the feeling that you have when you're a teenager and you suddenly look at your parents and think, oh, what I'm going through now, they went through one day. They were like me. What and what was that like? And now then he goes gets to go back and have fun. Right. 
sort of. So there are a lot of things. Uh, some time travel, Wells originally, it's completely clear what motivated him. He had a fascination with the future. He was, in, he was extremely curious about it. And this is another part of the answer to the question of why, why he invented time travel when he did. Suddenly, everyone was thinking about the future. Technology was changing the world so fast that it was meaningful to ask, what's the world going to be like in a generation? How will it be transformed? And around the turn of the 20th century, around 1900, everybody was very excited. You know, they had electricity. They imagined flying cars. Everybody was speculating about the year 2000 and speculating in an optimistic way. So. So that's a kind of time travel. You know, that's the Jetsons. Is that a cultural referent here? Um, you know, go into the future and everybody's going to have a lot of fun. Um, that's not quite as, that version of time travel isn't quite as popular in, in our time because we have generally a darker view of the future, I'd say, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I would say we do, but if you look at like a series like Star Trek, which has been on for you know 50 years, um, they had a very specific vision of humanity's future that was a bit more progressive and a bit more optimistic. I mean, what do you make of that? True. Well, that was that was 50 years ago, and and the different versions of Star Trek got a little bit darker, wouldn't you say? The films, the, the recent films, the Abrams film, yeah. But but nowadays, if you write about the future, especially if you're I'd say the more serious and literary a writer you are, the darker the future looks. Nobody is, nobody seems particularly optimistic. When the, the turn of the new century arrived, the turn of the millennium, there was not a lot of, leaving literature aside for a section, leaving popular art aside, there weren't a lot of newspaper articles where people were asked to predict the wonders of the year 2100. Right. Because... Well, I don't know why. I mean, maybe we've, maybe we feel a little betrayed by what technology has and hasn't been able to do for us. Maybe I'm sure that part of it is is concern about what we're doing to the planet, and and worry about you know what's going to what's going to be left when we're when we're done. So there's there's all kinds of pessimism. There's the Margaret Atwood version of pessimism about about the future. There's a new TV series, you know, based on her, um, on The Handmaid's Tale, which is all too relevant in, in our benighted country, Daniel. <laughs> um, I should say, though, that's only half the story going into the future, because, of course, a lot of time travel is about going into the past, yep. which H.G. Which Wells never did, oddly enough. I mean, you'd think... He had his hero with a time machine in the next book. Why wouldn't he go back and meet Shakespeare? But he didn't do that. That was left for later writers. And, and so a lot of time travel involves a love of history, a, a fascination with how things were. It's a way of... Um, I love these books by Connie Willis. Uh, the Doomsday Book is one of them. I can't really see the audience very well, so I don't know if people are like nodding in it with approval, but... I can see them perfectly, they're all <laughs> nodding. Um, there's, you know, for, for people who 
are very old and familiar with American cartoons. There's Rocky and Bullwinkle, Sher Sherman mm. and Mr. Peabody, um, Mr. P the dog Mr. Peabody and his pet boy Sherman, and they had a Wayback Machine and went back to explore history, to explore, to explore sort of comical versions of history. So that's, that's another, another motivator. So thinking about it, I mean, it's almost like time travel is a vehicle to express one's cynicism in popular culture. But um, what do you think? So let me ask you some film stuff. Um, you write about it really well. You know film really well and, 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 and literature really oh, well. you're setting me up now. No, I mean it. I'm, <laughs> I'm being absolutely sincere. So I, I want to ask you some of your favorites, right? So, um, okay, film, film nerd here. Um, what is your favorite film that grapples with uh, the butterfly effect, the, the grandfather paradox. You know, because I, I think that paradox with respect to time travel is what keeps uh, your science fiction writers going, no, like you said, and your uh, sort of physicist, your theoretical physicist saying, well, maybe. Right, well, so we should explain what the grandfather paradox is. Actually, most people probably know. Um, you, uh, the idea is, this is a way of saying that time travel can't be possible because of this paradox, that if time travel to the past is possible, you could go back and you could kill your grandfather. It's always the grandfather, by the way. It's always a man. Um, and then you will never be born, and then your grandfather will be fine again. And so you have a, you have a loop that doesn't make sense. And, and time travel to the past always if you can change history, involves some version of this paradox, and it can be hidden. And another version of the paradox is sort of um, the instructions for building a time machine are sent back to the past so that they're able to build it and go to the future, and then they have the instructions and so on. And um, yeah. it's a, there's a, I think the thing to say about all these paradoxes is that there's a violation of causality. That might be what the philosophers would say. And which is my favorite version of it in the movies? Um, it's difficult. I, there's a story, um, a fantastic story by Robert Heinlein called All You Zombies, in which, and this is a pretty early story, uh, to be dealing with issues of transgenderism. But, but Heinlein worked out a, a very complicated plot where the hero is his, his and her own mother and father. Yes, think about it. <laughs> I won't try to diagram it for you. But this movie, I, I haven't, this story has been made into a movie. Starring Ethan Hawke, I think, mm -hmm. and it's pretty recent. And there must be somebody here who knows what it is, but I haven't, I haven't seen it. Say, say predetermination. Again. Yes, that's it. Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah. All right, Pre predetermination. So, um, it's a paradox, and yeah. and every movie. I mean, you must know, you know Looper, Looper with Bruce Willis, right? Mm -hmm. There's an older version and a younger version. The younger version is played by. Mm -hmm. 
Joseph Gordon-Levitt, thank you. So, and there's a great scene, it's my favorite scene in the movie, and I used it as an epigraph for one of my chapters. They, they meet, they're, hit, they're a hitman, or they are hitmen, by the way. Yep. And, and when they meet, the young version, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, has no idea what's going on, and of course the older one, Bruce Willis, knows the whole story, and naturally, the younger one has a few questions, but they're in a hurry, and the older one says, look, Bruce Willis says, look, if we're going to talk about time travel shit, we're going to be sitting here making diagrams with straws all day. <laughs> yeah, that's the, a good one. Yeah. The paradoxes are messy, yeah. and, and if you let them, we'll make your head explode. Well, all right, so let's give another one then. Well, how about um, your, 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 the film that you think um, visualizes uh, the science of time travel the best, that really sort of... Uh, uh, time travel science. Well, you know that I don't think there is really time travel science, so I'm kind of cynical about it. Uh, Interstellar, a couple of years ago, um, had great pedigree because Kip Thorne, a Caltech astrophysicist, was a producer of, of the movie and scientific advisor, and made a, that involved wormholes. So if you you know, if you want that kind of scientific plausibility, it was sort of there. But I, but I also felt, in the end, there's a trick that you can't get past. I mean, I do think that, that the challenge for filmmakers, the artistic challenge, is to disguise the trick. You know, there's always something wrong. There's always something logically flawed. And if you can, if you can construct the movie so that the viewer leaves the theater not feeling that was ridiculous, then you've really triumphed. But I, th I feel that's a matter of art. I was telling you backstage, I loved the movie Arrival this year, which, yeah. um, which doesn't appear at first to be a time travel movie. It seems to be a movie about aliens arriving on Earth and everybody worrying about how to deal with that. And then it turns into a very tricky and subtle kind of time travel plot that also has a, a very weird paradox. And I loved it. And I, I try to avoid reminding myself that if you really think about it logically, it doesn't work. But for me, it worked. So how did you suspend that logic for this film? What was it in the film that allowed you to do that? Well, one thing... One thing is, the film is pretty hard to follow. <laughs> I, I mean, time. <laughs> honestly, I, I'm not sure I would have been able to follow it if I hadn't already read the short story it was based on, right, yeah. which is called Story of Your Life by Ted Chang, and I heartily recommend that. Um, the, the trick in the, the trick, no, I don't want to give the mo movie away for people who haven't, who haven't seen it. It's very good. Um, What's your favorite time travel movie? Uh, <laughs> I was interviewed in, uh, for the paper. It was a really smart guy out here, and um, he asked me that question, and I hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about it. So I came up with a Star Trek one, but now I've had time to think about it, and it's really something like um, you know, the Planet of the Apes series, I think. Because uh -huh. you know? I, I mean, my profession is I'm a critical race studies scholar, so I'm always looking for how film or television or science fiction uh, takes the future, takes time travel, takes aliens, uses it as a metaphor and allegory to talk about the contemporary world we live in, in which case race, gender, sexuality, you brought up transgender, come to four. And so that in the 70s really did the trick. 
I mean, did you, did you, you know, you're a New Yorker, Statue of Liberty, the whole thing? Yeah, yeah. Charlton Heston? And the fact that it's a time travel movie is sort of the punchline, right? Yeah. Again, I feel re reluctant to do spoilers here, but even though that's a very old You've movie. You've seen the... The um, new ones aren't as good as the old ones. Do I need to tell you that? Well, there's also... Um, there's a movie that I loved was 12 Monkeys. Bruce Willis again. Uh, with another very peculiar plot, and 12 Monkeys, it turns out, is based on a, a much less well-known movie, La Jete, that you know because yep. you're an expert, um, which is a movie by the French filmmaker named Chris Marker, mm -hmm. and it's barely a movie at all. It's 30 minutes long, it's black and white, it's still photos, and it has a very peculiar twist. Um, Again, it's a loop, and it involves, a, it involves a person who witnesses a death. So uh, I'm not going to say what the twist is, but if you've seen 12 Monkeys, it's the same, it's exactly the twist in, in that movie. And this is kind of leading me toward another answer to your uh, big question, which was, you know, why time travel in the first place? And and I do think that I do think that one way or another, all of time travel has something to do with mortality, has something to do with trying to escape death. Because time, after all, time kills us, right? We hear when we hear time's winged chariot, that's not delivering good news. And um, so when we get into our time machine, we're trying to escape from the, our inevitable deaths. And sometimes that's right in the forefront of a movie but, or a book, but I kind of feel that it's always lurking in the background somewhere. Do you think, I mean, you, you, you write, this is a really wonderful book, and um, I don't really have to say that because I'm a tenured professor, so I really mean it. That's a Thank really you. wonderful book. Um, you know science, you know it well, you've done all this other work, you're, you're, you're thoughtful about it, um, in, in the literal sense of thoughtful, deep. Um, and you kind of come to the conclusion that uh, time travel is not possible, and it's something else. And yet you finish the book, you write it, you know? Right. So is, 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 the, is the journey that you took as a writer, which is the maybe the last few questions I'll ask before we kick it out to the audience, is the journey you took as a writer to put this together, going through what you went through. Um, is, it a, is it about what you just said? Is it about a certain fate? No, I, I knew that time travel wasn't possible when I started the book. And I, and I knew that, um, to, put it, to put it that bluntly, and I, and I knew that it was a kind of, I did worry that I was committing a sort of fraud, you know, that, that some people were gonna buy the book and think, you know, you jerk. Why did you, you know, why did you spring me along? But, but, but I think it's this, the, the journey, as you call it, involves thinking deeply about what time is. And the reason time travel isn't possible, I'll say it again bluntly, is that, that the, the time travel idea implies that the future is there that it's fixed, waiting for us to arrive and see what it is. 
and that the past also remains in existence in some way. And this idea of the past and future happens to coincide with something that physicists tend to, if not believe as a description of reality, have made their orthodoxy when they model the universe. And that is that the universe is a four-dimensional space-time continuum. And time is another dimension within this object. And that the entire universe exists with time as just one direction in it. And that we, our consciousnesses, are traveling through it in a line, and we have just, it creates an illusion for us that the past and the future are different, but that's just an illusion. Um, many physicists will say that literally, and other physicists will say that's at least a convenient model. And I feel strongly that, that those physicists, that the right thing to say is that it's a model, and it's a model that omits an important part of our daily experience, and that is the past has happened, it's over, it's gone, and it's in a way receding. Our only access to it is imperfect. It's through memory and junk that we dig up from the ground, fragments of the past are accessible to us, and at the same time, the future is really different because it hasn't happened yet. And it will happen, but what will happen is somewhat up for grabs. Now, I should, I'm, to, to be clear, that's not a scientific statement. That's mm -hmm. a, a kind of religious statement. But it's also, I think it's fair to say, something that we feel in our guts. I mean, that's a description of our experience. And if you're a scientist and you want to claim that that's just an illusion, I think you have to deal with it, right? So... That's why time travel won't exist, but it's also why watching our great thinkers, from pulp writers to philosophers to great literary artists and filmmakers wrestle with these questions, is watching them wrestle with the nature of time itself. Yeah. So let me, before I kick this to the audience, we've got a, few more, uh, a, a good time for the audience. I want to ask you, you know, back on this journey of a writer, I think that really insightful. So what, and I'm, I'm asking you a question that is as much for me and I hope for the audience. So what advice do you give to the, to the writer? I mean, you're saying you knew the end of your story before you wrote it, which a lot of writers oh, know the no, end. No, I didn't know the, the end. I knew that how I felt about time travel before uh. I wrote I didn't know the end, actually. Um, I mean, it does have... The book does have an end, but things happened. But sorry, go on. Well, I guess I mean, I guess I mean it a little bit differently. Uh, um, maybe it's just me, but I'm thinking if I'm going to write a book on time travel, I'm going to um, think it's possible. You right. knew it wasn't possible before, and you wrote the book. So there's a journey oh. there so as a writer. So you want some how-to advice on how to... I mean, I got an I got an email from a screenwriter, uh, yeah, very recently asking a question like that. I don't think he'd read my book. I think he maybe he Googled time travel or something. But he, so he thought I would be an, an expert. And he said, "So you go back and he's working on a screenplay. You go go back in the past." Um, 
Lincoln is about to be assassinated. Now, we know that you can't change history because history happened that way. And so if your character is going to interact with people at the time, how do you make that work out logically? And so I had to, you know, I th even though my first reaction was, why are you asking me? My second reaction was try to give a polite answer. And, and my serious answer is, that's your job. And everybody does it differently. Uh. And that's the, that's the beauty of, of this whole panoply of time travel storytelling, is that every writer gets to make up the rules. And they read the stuff that comes before, um, and then they get to either assume that that's how it is. I mean, for example, if you just read The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, you would think that one of the rules is you don't have to worry about a source of energy. You know, energy is free. And you also don't have to worry about the, ro the motion of the Earth through space because your guy is just conveniently going to arrive at the same place. And most people who came after, you know, kind of took that as permission to do it that way, but some people didn't. Some people thought, all right, I'm going to wrestle with these questions. And same thing with the paradoxes. You know, you mentioned the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect as a scientific idea implies that if you make a small change in history, it's going to have enormous consequences down the road. And that is one possible assumption for a storyteller. But it's also possible for a storyteller to think, no, history has a kind of inevitability, it has a kind of flow, and um, you don't have to worry about being a bull in a china shop. You can go to the past and you can knock people around and, and the present will more, the future will, will work itself out, more or less. It's your choice as an artist. Well, it's one of the reasons why I like the McConaughey film. I, I know you didn't like it, but I like the fact that the way they visualized... Which, which one? Um, you just mentioned it, and it's just skipped my mind. Oh, Interstellar. Thank right. you. Okay. Interstellar. The reason I liked it, is because, and it was on TV here not too long ago, so I got to watch it twice, is um, the way they visualized uh, time travel through a wormhole and these fissures that allowed him to communicate with his daughter through a, a bookshelf, but he could see the past. It, it reminded me a little bit. I think they were trying to grapple with uh, the thing I told you about in the in, in the green room, the, 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 uh, what Hawking put out, imaginary time, that there's right. all these other timelines that you can create, that you can go in various times, but you can't go backwards, which I found it to be an interesting concept. Um, but I like that because I'm always thinking about how, how, as a writer, and you did this. I mean, this is nonfiction, but you imagined I mean, there was a lot. Of, it's a lot of imagining here to be able to say with some confidence it's not possible. Um, so I'm always thinking about that uh, in terms of how do you visualize something that abstract, that complex. Yeah, and I should add this: it's not possible as a literal thing. But then that's the bad news part of the joke, and the and the good news is that it is. It's not just possible, but it is a vivid and active part of our lives now. That is, we are time travelers. We, we in our imaginations, explore the past, experience the future in, in ways that were not available to our, to our ancestors. And, and part of that is because of a kind of liberation in the way we think about time. And part of it also has to do with technology. And 
um, the the miracles of light speed communication that allow us to get to what either allow us to or force us to, depending on your point of view, uh, access much of the world on screens. Mm. And the time frames of these screens can vary and we can play with them, we can slow them down, we can watch, um, you know, archived footage of tennis matches and then watch the slow-mo instant replay within the archived footage and we are, we are time travelers. I really got to say, documentary filmmakers take you back in time all the time to evidentiate something. So we have some time now for um, questions from the audience. It's, it's actually, I'm hitting the mark almost perfectly here. So I know there's mics. I can't really see them, but I'll do my best to identify. If somebody could grab a mic and ask um, James a question. Here we go. We got somebody right there. Uh, We're practically blind, though. Oh. Oh, that's better. Yeah, that's better. What a handsome crowd. I was just going to say. <laughs> a... um, um, I can't believe you haven't mentioned Doctor Who, but perhaps it's your background. Um, <laughs> Probably should have done that. But secondly, if um, time travel isn't scientifically possible without freezing the present, like sleep, like cryogenics, like in passenger, the hibernation, is that a form of time travel that might oh, be possible? Oh, yeah. That part's, that's possible. At least there's no reason you couldn't um, in th theoretically put yourself to sleep for a long time if that's, if that's what you want to do. And there are people who imagine that. There are people, I think, um, and, and by the way, that's also a scheme for escaping death. Right. That's why, aren't there a lot of rich people now investigating cryogenics so that they can be like Woody Allen and, and sleep into the future? Um, and some famous baseball players have done that. Yeah, it's a kind of time travel. I'd rather answer the Doctor Who question, though. <laughs> it's true that it wasn't even, it wasn't even a question, but I do, I do write in the book about one particular famous time travel episode of Doctor Who. I mean, most of the time, to be fair, Doctor Who is just a, a kind of historical joke like Sherman and Mr. Peabody. He goes back and he meets various historical figures, but, but occasionally um, they really do try to deal with paradoxical things and the nature of time in interesting ways. And my favorite episode is Blink, which, in which I know many of you must know it, um, People, people here tend to know Doctor Who a lot better than I do. But so in Blink, we start with a young woman, Sally Sparrow, and she's in a, she's in a scary old house, which is a very familiar time travel trope. Old houses are great time travel machines. And wallpaper starts to peel, and then you can see letters on the wall. Right. And it says, duck, Sally Sparrow, duck, now. And... As she grocks that and ducks, a rock comes hurtling through the window or something. And so that is weird. I mean, you, you realize that there's something, some odd asynchronous communication going on here. And it's a message from the doctor who's trapped in the past. And so this is the first, the first 
imaginative thing that you deal with is if you're trapped in the past and you want to send a message to somebody in the future who, who will have the ability to rescue your time machine and get it back to you, how do you send a message? And there's much, there's much more to it, but what I love about the episode without going on too much about it is the way it deals with an information loop. The loop here is information being sent from the past and then back to the past. And at one point, Sally and the doctor are having a conversation in which he's reading a script and she's saying, but you can hear me. And he says, yes, I can hear you. And she says, but that's impossible. And he says, no, I really can. But he is, all right, anyway. <laughs> I, I, I love that kind of thing. And of course, that's the episode in which the phrase timey-wimey first appears. I was going to do a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure uh, question, but the other question. We got a microphone, microphone right here coming. We sort of, um, you know, have relied on different cultures have relied on, on oral communication in the case of the Maori people as to talk about where they came from and all their ancestors. And our culture has relied on books to tell us what, what happened in the past. And of course, now we're on to movies. Now, um, so all those things we've been able to keep track of the past. Now, what do you think of the psychological impact of actually going to the past? Would, wouldn't that be too much for the human mind to co cope with? Wouldn't it be really disturbing? I mean, did it, could everybody hear the question? Yeah, it's true. It's true that all of these, as these forms of communication have improved, we have felt more comfortable Rightly or wrongly, I mean, we might be kidding ourselves sometimes with our understanding of the past. We see a lot of historical films about the past that, I, that are full of anachronisms and, and probably aren't very much like what the past was. So yes, I, I agree with you. I, as somebody who's tried to write history, uh, the, the farthest back my writing has taken me was to Isaac Newton's time. When I was writing that book, I felt strongly that that the world that Isaac Newton lived in was much more alien to our world than we tend to think. So yes, I, I think that it would be a, a tremendous shock to get to step out of your time machine into the world of even three or four hundred years ago. Um, I mean, we wouldn't even be un, able to understand people's accents, for one thing. And imagine what a shock it would be to get to get out even 50 years in the future. That's a, that's a scary idea. Scary. Here we go. Hi, fantastic to be here this evening. Um, I'm going to give you a twofold question so you can choose which <laughs> you take. Um, if you subscribe to the view that the future isn't fixed, what are your views on premonition? The, the other thing I wanted to mention is Julian May, who's a fantastic American author, I believe, and she sends some people back to the Pliocene age. Correct me I know I'm not getting. I didn't get who you said. Julian May. I don't know. Um, 
I, I will talk, I will say something about premonition just because, well, I don't believe in it. I'm, I'm not, I'm sorry if that offend, offends anyone here, but, but it's a powerful idea and it's an idea that arises in the history of people thinking about time. And, and in particular, there was a guy, um, I'm not going to be able to regurgitate his name at this, mo this moment, but he was a sort of philosopher in the early 20th century who wrote about time, and he believed very strongly his great insight was that he had woken up after having a, had a dream of, about some disaster that was going to take place in the future, and then the disaster did take place just as he had dreamed it. And because that experience was so real to him, he felt it required explanation. And um, there is no way to explain it without getting into some of what the Doctor Who people would say would be timey-wimey kinds of, kinds of puzzles. Okay, got someone right in the front row, and we probably should go in the back in a little bit later up, up, up there. Uh, science is hard, and it's conceptually hard to understand, and it's really hard to write about. But when I read your book on Isaac Newton, you took my brain places I thought would never be able to get there. Well, so now, how do you do that? How do you take complex ideas and write them in such a Great way question. that the ordinary, reasonably educated person can understand? What are the strategy you, you oh, use? Well, to thank do that? you. That's a very kind question. Yeah. My favorite kind of question. <laughs> <laughs> um, and to, to try to answer it seriously, I will. I mean, I'll tell you how I feel. Well, I'll tell you what I do. I'm not a scientist. Um, Daniel has given me much too much credit for knowing about science. I'm by profession a journalist, and so a journalist starts out by asking questions and starts out starts any story with the assumption that you don't know you don't know yet, and you're there to find out. And I do like I've always liked science, and and I must have some aptitude for it. But the main thing is to ask a lot of questions and force scientists to to talk to you. A, a lot of one thing that that I'm I'm never happy that I don't think anyone is happy about is is the the division in our culture between science and the rest of the culture, where scientists just are off in their own um, their own abstruse world and feel most comfortable talking to one another, and and then the rest of the culture. I mean, I didn't see this coming, but in in my country has started to disbelieve in them. So the the communication between scientists and the rest of the culture is really crucially important, I think. But part of the challenge is to just make scientists make scientists believe that they can explain their most difficult stuff, and. Um, it ought to be explainable because they care about it. They're living in the same world as the rest of us. And so that's my, that's sort of the article of faith that I start with. Somewhere in the back, yeah. Um, the whole theory about if you can move something fast enough, it will, its own personal like um, clock will slow down. Therefore, you can kind of go further into the future than your own lifespan would have allowed. How far forward do you think we could go with that? How 
many years do you think you could slow down? How much could you stretch that? Uh, as far as I know, uh, with my limited understanding of physics, there's no particular limit to it. And this is a very real phenomenon, time dilation. And, and last year when one of the astronauts who had been on the space station for a long time, you don't have to go super fast. The Russian. He, uh, so he came down and it was calculated that he was a fraction, a particular fraction of a second younger than his twin brother, or younger than he would have been. And so that's a small effect. But the closer you get to the speed of light, the more you can bring your personal clock almost to a halt. So I think if you wanted to, to go thousands of years into the future, that way you could. But always remembering that first you've got to have the spaceship. Now, the, Ru the Russian, who's up there the longest, it was concluded about two seconds. And yeah. then the two Americans, the twins, um, uh, yeah, because they could test them. So that is, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. And this is, this is known to be a real effect because the, the satellites that, that do G GPS, GPS for us have atomic clocks on them, and um, they're all about timekeeping, and, and it's important to get that right. Hello? <laughs> Ready to go? All right, next question have, on this side. I yes, have. sir. Yeah, so it has to do with this division between scientists and the rest of the people. I think the rest of the people um, believe in religion. Religion is very important. And I, I would claim now that religion is really based on space travel in a way. Space now, travel. we believe in paradise where nobody dies and we have great time for the rest of infinity, right? That's time travel. And the other one is ideas of reincarnation, where one is born again and again and again. And I think those are clearly ideas of time travel. And those are religion, and a lot of people believe in religion. So it seems like deep down, as you were saying, that time travel had to do with mortality. I think the base of religion, which is stated forever, has to do with time travel, which is apparently not possible. So, well, that's an, so that's you, a, you must not believe it's in... It's an interesting idea, so, but, but I would say, first of all, religion is a big category, and, and you know, different religions have different elements, and, and the elements you mentioned aren't necessarily universal. Also, um, when, when we say that reincarnation, let's say, is a form of time travel, I think that's a very legitimate thing to say, but, but I think we should recognize that we're using a, a new term to describe something that wasn't really thought of as time travel originally. And the same with, with paradise. To you, paradise seems to be a time travelish idea, and I completely understand that. But it wasn't always. Um, it didn't have to be. It might have just been a different place. Uh, utopia originally was a book by Thomas More, and we think of utopia as being in the future, but his utopia was just an island far away. He wasn't thinking of in terms of the future at all. The ancient Egyptians buried their kings in, in giant tombs with the idea that they were preserving them for an afterlife, but it's not clear that the afterlife implied anything about the future, if, if you see what I mean. I mean, when you say afterlife, 
Well, that does, that's a, time, a timey-wimey word right there. But, but the afterlife, I think, was conceived of, and perhaps Christian heaven is also conceived of, not so much as a future place as, as just a separate place, a, a, a place removed from our mundane universe. I think, you know, I'm just curious about this. The, the, the Judeo-Christian, if we're going to narrow it a little bit to religion, the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition has God as extra-temporal. God created time and space. And then it tells us the future in Revelation on the Christian side of it. So in many ways, the point that I think he was making is that, um, you know, at least the way I interpret it, sir, is um, the Judeo-Christian faith seems to be a faith about time travel, and if time travel is not possible, then the premise of the Judeo-Christian faith comes into a different kind of critical focus. I'm not sure it's. This, I'm not sure that that's clear, actually. And I <laughs> and I, I did I did think about that when I was working on the book. That is, yeah. what is religion? What are religious views of time? Because some of the some of the time travel stories I wrote about definitely had ideas of God in them, um, and. You can ask yourself, and I asked my theologian friends when I was working on the book for some expert advice on this. Does God see all of time? Is he omniscient with respect to the past and the future? You might be thinking, well, of course he is. He's omniscient. But alternatively, isn't it also possible that God, if you, if you believe in him or her, is in time with us and after all, if he is an interventionist God and is concerned about what we're doing, it does imply that the future is not set, that we have options. So um, God may not imply that all of eternity is fixed. Yeah, I think, I think in, the, in the Christian tradition we have micro options, but the, the future is written, right? Revelation. Uh, well, I'm not going to... I'm not going <laughs> to, if I'm not going to claim to be an expert in science, I'm certainly not going to offer any, any definitive not... Christian dogma here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That was fun. Um, sir. Um, we've talked about time going forwards and the possibility of even of distorting time going forwards, depending on what speed you go. Why can we only go forwards? Why in just one direction? Say that again. So we, we've talked about time, and you can perhaps change time subjectively by how fast you go closer to the speed of light. But we only seem to think that we can go. Oh, why do we, why forwards. does time seem to have a definite direction? Time, but why just one direction? Do you have a an explanation for that? I I kind of do. That is to say, I I can tell you what physicists think about this. That that and and this is um this is a a type of science that is somewhat in contradiction to what I said earlier, to the physicists, the relativists' notion of a fixed four-dimensional space-time continuum. Scientists also recognize that there is a, a preferred direction to virtually everything we care about in nature. Um, and you know there's a preferred direction because you can run a movie backwards and it instantly starts to look comical, right? If you have a, a, a motion picture in which a rock is thrown into a pond and there's a big splash and then the waves move outward and you, and you reverse the movie and you have a motion picture where, 
where waves are all converging on a certain spot and then there's a, a splash and a rock flies out of it. Well, that looks wrong. And um, an egg doesn't unscramble itself. And, and we're, what we're talking about here, as physicists will immediately recognize, is entropy, which is thermodynamics, and it's, uh, and it's a way of expressing a tendency in nature for things to become less well-organized unless you interfere with them. Um, imagine a movie of, of, of uh, billiard balls lined up neatly in their triangle, and then uh, the cue ball hits them and they fly in every direction. Now you run that movie backwards. They, these billiard balls are obeying the laws of physics. They're obeying Newton's laws. And they're still obeying them when you run the movie backwards. It's entirely physically possible for that reverse scenario to take place, for all of the billiard balls to suddenly organize themselves into a triangle. But it never happens. It's, it doesn't violate Newton's laws of motion but it violates laws of probability because order does not sp spontaneously arise out of disorder the way the reverse does. So that's, that's a way of expressing, the, the shorthand word for that in physics is time's arrow, and it's, it's a way of expressing the intuition that you're asking about, that time only operates in one direction. If you haven't read his book on chaos and information, which you're kind of subtly invoking in different ways, you really ought to read it, it's terrific. Um, we're now at uh, five minutes past what you told me to go. Can we ask another, can we have another question? All right, one more question. Okay, so we're out of time. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I'll be really that. quick. Um, uh, in your book you talked about, well you touch on, that in the Western world we tend to think of time as something that we can see, uh, the future that is, is ahead of us, and the past is firmly behind us, and that you t sort of intimate that that's not necessarily the case in all cultures, and in fact, that isn't the case in Maori culture where it's flipped, where the past is seen and known, and it's the future that's behind you because you can't see it. And I just wondered if in the course of your research, if you had come across other cultures that view time that way. Yes, that's a, this is a very good point, and it's, it's interesting, it's interesting how our, the words we use for time tend to condition our thinking about time, and 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 those words vary from one language to another. There are a lot of a lot of words in English that have to do with space that we also employ in using about time, which is one reason it becomes possible to think about time as a fourth dimension, just like another dimension of space. And just as you say, it's fairly automatic in Western cultures to think, point to the future, point to the past, but that is not universal. And there are many cultures in which the opposite is, is the case. And, and um, in some Asian languages, the directionality of past and future tends to be vertical, up and down, as opposed to forward and back. So um, it's useful to to be pushed outside of the box that we're born into. Even and, in science, you know, in, in quantum mechanics, they visualize the future above. In certain areas of theoretical physics, they view it right to left. So I do think, I think, yeah, you know, there's different ways in which you can really imagine the, the temporal order of things that you've shed light on. 
Well, th- awesome. <laughs> I'm really glad I took this fellowship. This is awesome. Get to sit here with him. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. It's been really a terrific, really terrific. Thank you. And thank you all. Okay. Good.